What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Dr. Jamie Seaman, aka Dr. Fit and Fabulous on Instagram. How are you, doctor? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Robert. Absolutely, absolutely. We met the first time at KetoCon, I believe, right? Yes, we did. And talk to me a little bit about what you specialize in because your bread and butter, I guess I can't use bread and butter as a terminology anymore now that I'm keto, but what you focus on is is something that I get a lot of questions about, especially from all my female clients, but kind of give us a little background on what your specialty is. Yeah. So I'm a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist. So I'm an OBGYN. I practice in Omaha, Nebraska, but I have actually a background in nutrition before I ever went to medical school. I was a former collegiate athlete, so my my degree is actually in nutrition and exercise science. Um, but I went through some of my own personal health struggles through three different pregnancies and really actually came into the ketogenic diet on a, a super personal level. Um, I found out I had prediabetes, but working in women's health, I encounter so many patients and so many women in particular that have so many problems that can be fixed with low-carbon ketogenic diets. And so it's really become uh, a really integral part of my uh, practice. And I'm also currently an integrative medicine doctor. So I have a, a huge interest in preventative care for women and reversal of chronic disease. What was your athletic preference like what were you what were you training for so i played softball for the university of nebraska very cool and when when, okay just looking at a timeline of events when did you start getting into keto yeah so i've been ketogenic for about a little over two and a half years and i've been predominantly like more carnivore based since november gotcha and you your your desire to kind of get more into the nutritional side of things kind of came out of your own you know, self-interest because you were diagnosed with the prediabetes? And when was that? Yeah. So I have uh, I have three daughters. They are four, six, and eight. And during my pregnancies, I failed my glucose testing. And then after my third daughter was born, you know, just like I think most moms, I really wanted to get my pre-pregnancy body back. And I had a little bit of weight to lose, but I went to an annual examination and found out my hemoglobin A1C was actually high enough to count as pre-diabetes. And that was kind of an eye-opening time for me in my life because I still felt like I was young and healthy and I was actually still exercising and going to the gym. And if you looked at me, um, you know, I didn't look obese. I didn't, you know, besides a family history of diabetes, really have a lot of risk factors. So I really started to look at my nutrition and here I was with a background in nutrition and exercise science and a medical degree. And I was struggling to find a pattern of eating that would fit. And so we tried lots of different things, Whole30, Paleo, my husband and I, you know, kind of dabbled in everything. And we finally settled on the ketogenic diet and we just, we feel so good. I have reversed my prediabetes. Um, I'm in the best health of my life. I um, got back into weightlifting and fitness and, um, I've just really never felt better ever, you know, on a personal level. My biomarkers are so great. And so now I'm really on a mission to help women do the same thing. Do you happen to remember what your A1C score was when you tested? Yeah. So it was like 6.1, I believe was the highest it ever got. And currently my A1C is 5.0. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, it is. It's truly crazy. Like when you look at, because if you don't mind me asking, how, how old were you when you got that test done? 
So I'm current, I'm, let's see, I'm 34. So basically I think I was, I was like 31 when they told me this. Yeah. So it's gotta be like a pretty eye-opening moment when you're 31, you're fit, athletic. I mean, this is what you, this is what you're studying. This is your expertise and you get the news that you're pre-diabetic, I mean, it's, it's probably going to hit you pretty hard. Yeah, I mean, it was my my own father's a diabetic, and, and both of his parents were diabetics. But if you look at us, I mean, if you looked at them, my, my dad was actually a former NFL player, and um, we don't look like your stereotypical, you know, obese person. And we were even, you know, exercising. And so I just tell people, you don't really know what's going on in the inside unless you test. So, you know, I always say like, test, don't guess, like really know what your numbers are. Um, you just, you just don't know unless you test. What was your nutrition like prior to experimenting with the different diets and falling on keto? What was like a, just a standard American diet, I assume? Yeah. So I will be the first to admit I was not a good patient. I, um, I ate pretty healthy when I was in college because we had a nutritionist, but it was still like very balanced macronutrients. Um, and then when I went to medical school, you know, I fell into the trap of, of long nights studying at the library and just probably not making some of the best nutrition choices. And that really caught up to me in my pregnancies. Pregnancy is really one of the greatest physiologic tests of a woman's health. And if you have insulin resistance, it will, it will rear its head in pregnancy. And so during my pregnancies, I was in my medical training and working 36 hour shifts at the hospital and, I really just, I wasn't eating that great. I was still trying to exercise, but yeah, typical standard American diet, lots of processed foods, lots of fast food, lots of convenience foods. And, um, it, it showed. Is there, I'm, I'm curious here, was there very much difference as it relates to the educational background when you were studying exercise and nutrition versus when you went to medical school, as far as nutrition is concerned, was there much like was it was it a deep dive into keto at all or was that pretty much just surface level no so even my nutrition degree you know i sat in classes with registered dietitians and they talked about lots of different you know ways to treat patients for conditions so you know standard american diet versus dash diet versus mediterranean diet i don't even actually remember them even touching on low carb or ketogenic but of course this was you know 15 years ago and when we got into medical school, we had just a really few lectures, you know, in our second year of medical school on nutrition, but really we don't get a lot of formal education in nutrition in medical school. So it was, it's been different for me to have the background that I do. A lot of my colleagues have, you know, much less experience um, with nutrition. And so I didn't have a lot of exposure. I certainly had heard of low carbon ketogenic before and I grew up in a house where my mom struggled with her weight, and I knew she had gone through periods in her life where she had cut carbohydrates and had a lot of success. Um, but for me as a doctor, the physiology made sense, right? Because I've failed my glucose testing and I have diabetes, and it just made sense that cutting carbohydrates would help repair my insulin resistance. But I think what I didn't realize was how good it would make me feel. Like the weight loss has been great and I'm, you know, at the best body composition of my life. But for me, just the, like the mental clarity and the ability to intermittent fast, if I need to, when I'm at the hospital, I might be doing deliveries in the middle of the night or in a really prolonged surgery. And I don't have the ability to eat six meals a day, you know, and that's like what I had kind of been told over and over and over as an athlete is you got to eat frequently and eat protein frequently and so the ability to live ketogenic and intermittent fast, it's just something that really fits. It's a sustainable lifestyle for me, but it's really just the how I feel on the inside um, that really probably matters the most. I just feel like a human again. I'm not 
as tired. I sleep better. I feel like I'm a better mom, definitely a better, a better doctor. And, um, I, we are we are never looking back. That's for sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely. I, I don't get it how people can, you know, tap into keto, get adapted, have the just night and day difference in the way they feel, and then regress to going backwards. Like I understand, you know, people have obstacles and distractions and kind of get off track. But I mean, when you feel as good as you feel with keto, and just like the mental clarity that comes with it, the anti-inflammation that comes with it, it's like I don't know how you could sustain going back from that. Yeah, totally. And there's been periods. I mean. I'm definitely not perfect. And, you know, I've had slips and trips and things like that. But it's been crazy because every time that happens, I realize how awful I feel. And it's very easy for me to get back on track because I I see what it does for my energy and, and for my health. So yeah, I'm totally with you, Robert. I I was a little intimidated. I I love carbs. I wish I had carb tolerance. I wish I had insulin sensitivity, you know. Um, but it's just it's just not what fits my my DNA and my genetics, and uh, I I feel the best living this way. Do do you think this is kind of going back to something you said just a moment ago? But you know, it's feeling as good as you do now, knowing what we do now with just the research that's been done, and I feel like as technology makes headway, as people become more knowledge based on nutrition, do you think and do you notice any steps being made to rewrite these medical and and collegiate books or these 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 textbooks are they getting a makeover with a focus on nutrition at all or is this totally secondary i think there's definitely a shift in medicine to have more comprehensive care so to have people like pharmacists and nutritionists and and, and a whole team of people taking care of people um, there's there's better care that's provided when you put six heads together instead of one but putting the burden of nutrition and and things like that on physicians. I mean, we're, we're already very burdened with, with the ability to take care of patients in the short amount of time that we do. And so I don't know that it's the answer. I find that some people are starting to be open-minded, but being a ketogenic supportive physician, I still, you know, quite feel like the black sheep sometimes. Um, I have a lot of people in my own community that, that don't support it, despite, you know, the evidence I've, been optimistic with some of the new recommendations put out by the American Diabetes Association and, and with studies coming out that maybe people really will kind of open their eyes to this. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm really just trying to be a pioneer in this space because what's happened in my own community is I've, I've been living this way and people know it through social media and things like that. And I've really kind of accrued this large patient base of people that eat low carbon ketogenic and being an obstetrician, I have pregnant people who come in, you know, eating this way and they want guidance and and there's none out there. You know, there's no studies, there's no literature, we're in uncharted waters. And so I'm really actually trying to set the standard and, and figure out what is the best practice for these patients. And uh, they're probably going to do it regardless. And so we really need to find, you know, people that are supportive in the medical community. Um, you need to find a medical provider that, that will support you. And I, I applaud patients who come in motivated to change because it's not, you know, typically what we see sometimes as doctors, people just want a quick fix or, or a medication. So I just love seeing that patients are becoming more educated, patients are becoming more empowered to, you know, fix some of these problems. And, and that is part of the solution too, for the medical system is not only providers, but just patient accountability. Patients need to be more accountable for their health. And, and I always tell patients, nobody should care more about your health than you do. Totally agree. 
Totally agree. I really want to take this opportunity to just dive into keto as it relates to females, hormones, pregnancy, breastfeeding, all the above, because there's there's a huge black hole there, because like you said, there's not a whole lot of people talking about that. It is uncharted waters, and I just want to take advantage of having you on here because you know your stuff as it relates to all of that. So let's just dive in and kind of take it from the top. Like, What are some misconceptions? What are some, some things that people need to kind of grasp when dealing with any of this? Um, how is keto different for females versus males? Just just take the mic and run with it for a second. Yeah. So a lot of the things that I hear in the women's space is that, you know, being on the ketogenic diet, it's going to ruin your hormones or, or ruin your thyroid function. So that's, I guess, the first thing I kind of want to address. Um, thyroid dysfunction in women is, is very common. And actually, some of the estrogen dominance that we encounter in women's health, so People with obesity have estrogen dominance. People with PCOS have estrogen dominance. People who are menopausal have estrogen dominance. And just having estrogen dominance in the body can actually put quite a bit of a burden on the thyroid and can be a contributing factor to hypothyroidism. And then we have the issue of um, autoimmune conditions related to the thyroid, like Graves' disease or Hashimoto's. And a lot of that is caused by you know, inflammation and reactivity a lot of times with, with broken guts and things like that. So I've actually taken care of a lot of women who are low carbon ketogenic and actually seen reversal of hypothyroidism. Um, I myself actually had postpartum hypothyroidism after all three pregnancies and was able to come off of my thyroid medicine about a year and a half ago. And I've been following my markers and I have completely normal thyroid function. Now, one thing, um, that we see in the literature is, with weight loss in general, we see a, a reduction in thyroid function. And so just creating that calorie deficit can, can cause a reduction in thyroid function. The, the thyroid um, is kind of the master gland of, of metabolism. And so as you lose weight, your, your metabolism and your thyroid function goes down. And, and there's certainly ways that we can manipulate that with, you know, refeeding with calories for periods of time and, and things like that. We don't want to be chronically in a, in a, in a large calorie deficit or a period of starvation, or our body will just kind of go into conservation mode. Um, but we do see a reduction in thyroid function, but typically with time, it will, it will level out. Um, the other thing that's really come up, especially um, in the carnivore community, is this significant reduction in the T3 thyroid hormone or the free T3. And the T3 is our active thyroid hormone. And I've talked about this on, on a couple other podcasts. And basically, what we see in the literature is Dr. Volek has probably done most of these studies, but they have, they have done studies in people on low-carbon ketogenic, and they have followed their thyroid function. And nobody, not one patient, has developed hypothyroidism. And despite this reduction in the free T3, what people should understand about the thyroid is there's something called TSH, or thyroid-stimulating hormone, that basically... Um, tells us if your thyroid function was actually low, your TSH should start to rise, meaning your body is telling um, your thyroid gland, hey, we need more thyroid hormone, and it starts to increase this TSH level. But what we see is this, despite the reduction in the free T3, we don't see a concomitant rise in the TSH. The TSH actually stays pretty stable. And so the working theory around this reduction in the T3 thyroid hormone is that this is kind of the same as repairing insulin resistance. Is there a level of thyroid resistance that's going on? And this reduction of T3 is just a new normal for the thyroid. It's more thyroid sensitivity. Um, that's quite possible. And you know what we know too from longevity is that having 
a really high T3 level is actually not good. I mean, a lower T3 actually is uh, uh, improves longevity. So I haven't seen an issue with it. Um, and, and what's interesting is even when it falls just below like the normal level, um, patients are not symptomatic. Usually when you see a patient with hypothyroidism, they, they will have symptoms of fatigue and constipation and, and they become very symptomatic, but we don't see that in these, in these patients. And I've spoken with a lot of other medical providers that take care of, uh, this same kind of, you know, group of patients, low carb and ketogenic, and they all, um, really see the same things that I'm seeing. And so that's one thing is is thyroid function. It will not ruin uh, your thyroid gland. So people really need to understand that. And then the other issue is hormones. And people say uh, that it will increase your cortisol and it will tank your hormones. So cortisol is is a hormone that we need in our body. It's good in small amounts, um, small amounts of stress. I think it's kind of the analogy of like you want to bend but not break. So certainly we want small amounts of cortisol in our life, but chronic high cortisol levels, which, which a lot of Americans have, um, which can also contribute to insulin resistance and, and high blood sugars, um, a lot of people have these issues. And so with weight loss and with stress management, a lot of times we can actually bring those cortisol issues kind of back into check. And the balance of cortisol is actually oxytocin, which in my world as an OBGYN, um, we, we love oxytocin because it's involved with, um, with labor and um, it's secreted um, after um, orgasm and with, with intercourse. And so oxytocin is kind of the love, the cuddle hormone. And so that's what balances cortisol. And so for us, we're trying to really keep those two things in check. Um, the other hormones that are super important for women are, are estrogen and progesterone. And we kind of brought up earlier in the podcast talking about estrogen dominance, which is a huge issue for women. And so women basically go through, um, they go through puberty and then they go through fertile years of their life where they're kind of like two weeks of estrogen and two weeks of progesterone essentially. And then they go through perimenopause, which is like reverse puberty, and then they go through menopause. But during these ovulatory um, years of a woman's life when she's fertile, we want a balance of estrogen and progesterone. And progesterone is really predominantly secreted from the ovary. And so if women are not ovulating, if women are not having normal menstrual cycles, um, it can create estrogen dominance. And this is something I see a lot. And this is kind of the stereotypical picture of a patient with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. So what's happening is they have high estrogen, they typically will have high androgens like testosterone, but they're not ovulating and so they don't have progesterone. And so putting a patient on a low-carb or ketogenic diet, which by the way, I believe should be first-line therapy for patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, um, if you can get them to restore ovulation, um, you'll bring their estrogen and their progesterone back in balance. And as they start to lose body fat, that will also help bring their estrogen back into balance. And not just for PCOS, but all of these things that, that create estrogen dominance, you know, we see issues like endometriosis and fibroids. And then when, when women go through menopause, the ketogenic low-carb diet, when done correctly, a well-formulated diet um, can actually balance hormones very nicely. And I've had a lot of women, you know, come into my clinic and, and tell me that. I mean, I've, I've observed these patients. And so although we don't have tons of studies, we have lots of, of case reports and, and anecdotal information of providers taking care of these people. And I, of course, you know, uh, being kind of a science nerd and geek have been able to follow my own hormone levels. And so, um, but I remind women in this space, in the low carbon ketogenic world, that, that your period is a vital sign. Because I've also 
I've also seen women who have lost their periods being low carb or ketogenic and, and some even in the carnivore community. And my theory with this, um, well, it's kind of twofold. One is that some of these women are getting to such an amazing body composition level that their body fat is actually getting too low. And because the period is, is like a vital sign, the body is telling you this would not be a good time to have a pregnancy, to reproduce. And so it turns off the ovaries. It goes into, you know, into this conservation mode. And so if you're not having your period, something is not right. And you need to test and you need to see what your hormone levels are. Sometimes it's a low body fat issue. Um, sometimes we need to do a refeed with um, maybe a small amount of carbohydrates or calories, or maybe we need to put on some body fat. The other thing is in the carnivore world, I think sometimes when women go to more of a carnivore-based diet, and I found this uh, even with myself, is that we see such a significant increase in protein by eating mostly animal foods um, and, and muscle meats. But if they're not careful about adding fat um, into the diet, um, I've seen some women who eat a one-to-one -one ratio of protein to fat that will actually you know, stop menstruating. And I really think that women require a slightly higher uh, percent of calories from fat, um, especially when carnivore. And sometimes even we'll see an increase in fasting insulin or an increase in fasting glucose too amongst these people. And I've heard you know, Dr. Saladino has talked about this in some of his podcasts, uh, which is exactly what I'm, what I'm observing amongst these patients, is that I think women who eat a carnivore-based ketogenic diet have to be real careful about actually consuming a little bit more fat and a little bit less protein. Um, I tested my hormones back in May. Um, and like I said, I've been predominantly carnivore since November. Um, I've had periods of where I've tried some targeted ketogenic and, and cyclic. So I've, I've, and sometimes I just want a salad mostly like out of boredom, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, just for the, just for like the texture. But uh, I tested my hormones and I'm cycling very regularly, but I did notice that my estrogen was, was kind of on the lower end of normal. And so over this uh, last month, I've been a little more conscious about adding a little bit more fat and dropping my protein a little bit. And, um, and I retested uh, just recently about a week ago and, and my estrogen actually did come up um, a little bit. But like I said, I you know I'm still cycling normal, but this is an observation I've definitely made uh, in the in the carnivore community is that uh, people do need to kind of look at their macronutrients and, and the balance of fat and protein. And it's not the same for everybody. I think, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a blanket approach. People have, you know, genetic polymorphisms and polymorphisms and things like that, that, that they make their diet look a little different than their friends. But I think these are things that we need to pay attention to in women's health um, because women should be menstruating and women should be making these hormones. They do amazing things in our body that, um, you know, for our bones and our hearts and our brains. And so, um, and it's kind of, you know, we see this in, in men's health too. I'm not a, a men's health provider, but certainly I've noticed in my community, there's a lot of testosterone clinics popping up. And the standard American diet is is driving down men's testosterone and it's increasing their estrogen considerably. And, uh, you know, this increases uh, the risk of prostate cancer in, in men. And so I think hormonal imbalance is super important, not only for women, but but for men too. Totally agree. And I'm, I'm really glad that you touched on the higher fat ratio, especially for women, because I completely agree. There's There's been several instances, you know, when I've worked with clients and prepping for a competition where they'll get very low body fat. And it's pretty typical for females to lose their period right there leading up to a show. Um, but if you do that correctly, it comes back relatively soon. 
afterwards, but I've noticed that when they maintain maintain a higher fat ratio, like north of 82% of their calories coming from fat, they're able to maintain their cycle much more regularly than than their competitors who are very low calorie as well, but then also not having near the fat intake. So I think from a hormonal regulation standpoint, having the fat ratio up high is, is incredibly important. And for men as well, they, they don't have to have quite the high fat ratio, but still I think you know, north of 78% of their calories coming from fat. Just those numbers kind of broad spectrum, I feel, have a, a better better ability to maintain proper hormonal balance than a very high protein relative to fat. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I think part of it depends too on what your goals are. So certainly people like clients that you work with that are, you know, prepping for figure competitions and things like that. I mean, protein's super important. And for me, I I work really hard in the gym and I definitely don't want to shortchange my protein, but I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, what is the adequate protein intake in these situations? And I think sometimes we're, we're probably overshooting it and we're sacrificing fat. So yeah, I love, uh, I love that you agree with that and, uh, and what people really need to pay attention to it. So if you're not menstruating, you need to get that checked out. Definitely. Let's talk a little bit about the hormones from a, a birth control standpoint and then from like an artificial estrogen and um, the phytoestrogens that are out there now, like that's a big topic right now in the keto space, but then also just in, you know, genetics and epigenetic space alone. So how, I mean, have you noticed the, the phytoestrogens and the artificial estrogens that are incredibly <laughs> dominant and everywhere these days having a, a noticeable impact on, uh, you know, estrogen levels, progesterone levels, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So women will come in with, you know, kind of vague complaints, irregular menstruation and, and things like that. And I do think that we have a lot of endocrine disruption in our world. Um, you know, just with modern society, we have more plastics and more chemicals and more cosmetics that women get exposed to and household cleaning items and plastic bags. And a big one that I talk to my patients about, maybe you don't even know about it, is thermal receipt paper. So when they hand you a receipt at the grocery store, thermal receipt paper is extremely high in BPA. And it can be a big xenoestrogen, a big endocrine disruptor. And alcohol hand sanitizer increases the absorption of that BPA by, by more than tenfold. So women don't even realize the number of chemicals that they're really getting exposed to. And, and men too, but it causes significant endocrine disruption. It can cause dysregulation of, of both estrogen and progesterone and, and the thyroid gland. And I do think it's why we see more of it. I, I really do. Um, and then the other issue I think you asked about was, was birth control. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's near and dear to my heart. I'm a women's health practitioner and and I believe in contraception and I believe in a, in a woman's right to, to plan her pregnancies. We certainly see, you know, about 50% of pregnancies across the U.S. are unintended. And so we want women to, uh, you know, have charge of their fertility. Um, but birth control doesn't come without side effects as well. So the birth control pill, for instance, is made of ethanol estradiol, which is a synthetic estrogen. And then some form of a progestin. There's lots of different ones depending on which formulation you're looking at, but um, these are not bioidentical to the the hormones inside our body. And when we take them orally, we require the you know the burden of the it's almost the detoxification of these birth control pills uh, to be placed on the liver. And so, um, if people have um, poor nutrition prior to starting an oral contraceptive, they're far more likely to have side effects and 
this is a, a little known fact, even amongst OBGYNs, but birth control pills actually deplete the body of key nutrients, vitamins, and minerals. So big ones that get depleted are B vitamins, zinc, selenium, and magnesium. So even just being on the birth control pill and having these nutrient depletions um, can cause hypothyroidism. It can cause other endocrine problems. And so people need to know that if you are going to be on contraception, um, you actually you actually need better nutrition <laughs> being on these things. Um, other, the pills, patches, and rings essentially all work the same way by inhibiting ovulation, um, by dosing estrogen and progestins uh, through the vaginal mucosa or through the skin, certainly bypasses the liver, but they still can cause side effects in the body. Um, the other birth control that's commonly used is the the progesterone IUDs or the implants, and these mm -hmm. have uh, progestin in them called levonorgestrel, and and side effects from those can be changes with hair or acne. Um, it tends to be a little bit more of an androgenic progestin, and so so it can cause side effects. Um, and then there there is non hormonal contraception as well, which certainly comes without the. The side effects of hormones, but even the copper IUD, the Paragard IUD, the copper compete for can compete for zinc in the body. So I think that uh, it's it's not talked about, but drug nutrient interactions in women's health. Um, nutrition is super important for women, and then when they come off birth control and they try to get pregnant, we of course want want their their nutrition to be the best it is, you know, prior to conception. Yeah, I feel like this is definitely something that's not talked about enough. And like for me as a male, it never really occurred to me. I mean, until I, you know, married Crystal obviously and started learning about this, but it, it it's crazy because these these females, these young females are getting on birth control at such a young age and they're staying on it for, you know, upwards of 10, 15 years or longer and it's having a pretty you know, compounding exponential effect on their body's own ability to create proper hormone balances. So, and then when they get off of it, it it's not like it bounces back to normal overnight. It takes sometimes years to, to regulate. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And a lot of OBGYNs will also use the birth control as treatment for for hormonal dysfunction. And what people need to understand is it may mask some of the complaints and side effects and things like that but it doesn't fix the problem. And so what we need to focus on in women's health is actually fixing the problem. If the patient doesn't need contraception, then putting them on a birth control pill to fix their symptoms doesn't actually fix what the root cause is. And so, and it can cause more problems. Yeah, you're right. They're on it for 10 years just because they had irregular periods and then they come off it. Um, and now they want to get pregnant and you've never actually fixed the underlying cause, which a lot of times can be things like insulin resistance and inflammation. So yeah, I, I'm totally with you. We need to start talking about it more and um, and we need to do a better job for women. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that, I mean, I get that Having a period can be painful, the cramps, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that you should just avoid it completely and remove it from your body's natural function is just an odd way of thinking in my mind. Like this is a natural process that's supposed to happen every month. If you get rid of that, then there's going to be some negative consequences that come as a result. Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I know you've never had a period, Robert, but I know you can sympathize. <laughs> you have a wife. But, but the interesting thing is that periods actually shouldn't be painful. And, and sometimes that's caused by estrogen dominance um, or, or other issues or conditions. But what's been super interesting is I have seen women low carbon ketogenic who have told me that they basically have no pain with their periods anymore. And the reason that women have pain and cramping is because this increase in prostaglandins that happens when the, the uterus is contracting and trying to close off these little blood vessels during menstruation. And I think it's the anti-inflammatory effect of, 
of ketosis that is really helping with the discomfort that women experience during their periods. I've seen it time and time again, and and um, even even in my own uh, even in my own life, uh, my I literally have no pain during my periods at all. And so I I know that sometimes as women we just say, oh well, this is normal, and this is like you know just like a rite of passage. But like it's it, it's really not. It's really not. I don't think our bodies were intended to like torture us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't I don't either. I mean, speaking for Crystal, uh, she she was on birth control for years, I think eleven years, I believe. She was on the pill and then she switched to the IUD and she was on that for I think two years. And then here recently she switched off of that completely and has been using the the Daisy. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Yeah, the yeah. So like a fertility thermometer. tracker. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this is I mean, this is an old method. Tried and true method is tracking basal body temperature. So we see um after ovulation, when the progesterone starts to rise, we see an increase in basal body temperature. Progesterone is kind of a, a warming hormone. And so people can track their cycles. And if you have very normal, regular cycles, you can use fertility trackers. Um, we call it like natural family planning, basically. And that's either avoiding intercourse during your most fertile days or using a backup barrier method like condoms, uh, you know, during the the times of your cycle where you're most fertile. And it can be a great form of contraception for couples um, who are wanting to avoid pregnancy. Now, that um, comes with a caveat that your cycles must be very regular. If you have very irregular menstruation and you're not ovulating on a consistent basis, um, you're more likely to fail at this method. Yeah, I mean, it's for her, like just noticing that she's been off of the the birth control pills and IUD for I think four or five months now and her body's ability to just regulate it, it took several months to like three months or so for everything to fully equalize but now she doesn't have near the pain everything's much more you know synchronized everything's much more regular it's just a much healthier approach which for me trying to go back to being as natural as possible and just doing what's right for the body's sake and looking at things from an epigenetic standpoint like i want to be putting my my future kids in the right position and if she's constantly flooded with artificial hormones you know for years on end that that isn't the most responsible thing for her or i to be doing for ourselves or for any future children we have yeah a hundred percent so what you're touching on there for anybody listening is called epigenetics and so when a baby is inside a mom's tummy um, you are actually able to influence that baby's DNA through epigenetic influence. So, it, I mean, it's literally changing the baby's DNA. And so this is why prenatal and, and intranatal and postnatal nutrition is so important because in pregnant and breastfeeding people, I mean, they're literally changing health outcomes for their baby for, you know, generations to come. And estrogen, you know, um, is kind of a use it or lose it hormone. So we don't want excess estrogen hanging around, you know, it increases the lifetime risk of, of breast cancer and endometrial cancer in women. And so I applaud people that are, are trying to get things back in balance the most natural way. Now, certainly, like I said, birth control has its place, but, um, for, for some women, this, this approach is, is the best one. So let's talk a little bit about, about cravings here. I hear, again, I haven't had a period, don't plan to, but I hear that when you are, you know, hitting your cycle, it's okay and totally ketogenic to have a, an overindulgence of, of cookies and ice cream because that's what your body's craving. Is that correct? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just hearing excuses. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so, so definitely, um, 
during the cycle, so the first two weeks of a, a woman's cycle, which the first day is the first day of, of the menstrual cycle, um, that is when we see mostly estrogen. And then the second two weeks is when we see mostly progesterone. And during the estrogen phase of the cycle, women will be really doing well with their diet. They'll have minimal cravings. Um, they're going to have actually better recovery in the gym. So like I'm cycle day seven and I lifted really hard this morning and I felt like amazing. Um, but then once you go to progesterone phase, women tend to have more cravings, um, specifically for carbohydrates. Um, they tend to recover not as well in the gym. They have a little bit more more fatigue and it's hard to get the energy up because progesterone is such a calming hormone. And so, and it's this progesterone phase that's leading into the, essentially the next period. And so, um, yes, it's typical in the second half of the cycle to have more cravings, to have a little bit more difficulty, you know, sticking to their, their dietary plan. But I think that's kind of the cool part about really going through natural cycles is when you have the ability to kind of track your cycle, you can really be in tune with your body and you can do things to kind of hedge your bets a little bit. Like when you know the second half of your cycle is coming, it might be a better idea to scale back on your, your gym routine a little bit, or maybe meal prep to try to keep you on track. Um, just kind of actually knowing what your body is going through and just like empowering women with that knowledge can sometimes actually keep them on track a little bit better, I think. Is there any way to, to hedge against any of the negative effects such as, you know, a lot of women talk about a lot of water retention and bloating, which is normal. I, I always recommend my clients just hyperhydrate, so to speak, like consume a bit more water to help flush out any excess water retention. Is there anything that comes to mind that, that you could speak on? Yeah. So, you know, I... I wish I wish there was an easy answer, but the, there's a reason that you go through estrogen and progesterone phases, and um, the progesterone phase just seems to kind of be the worst one for women. You know, specifically like that week before their period, it's where we tend to see a little bit more, um, you know, anxiety and depression, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and things like that. Um, there's there's not a great solution for it. You know, I don't recommend like diuretic therapy and things like that, but certainly um, preventing some of kind of the the bloating and um, water retention that can happen in that progesterone phase, just really, you know, sticking with your diet, hydrating, you're exactly right, Robert. And then, you know, maybe changing your workout routine a little bit just to kind of fit how you're feeling. Is there a, a biological benefit to increasing carbohydrate or calories or any of that during that time? Or is that more of a psychological crave? Like, is there any benefit? Like a lot of people will justify, you know, if, if my body's feeling this, I need to give it this. But is that more biological or more psychological? Yeah, I really think it's more psychological than anything. Um, because progesterone, our, our hormones do play a role in our neurotransmitters. And so I I think it's really more more psychological than it is like a, a need physiologically to have those. Um, I have noticed though, um, tracking like my own glucose and ketone levels. And I had actually somebody reach out recently this week asking is um, they were noticing lower ketone levels during, during their cycles. And, um, and so I think there is probably, you know, at a, at a metabolic level, a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of nuance there with what's happening, you know, with metabolism, things like that. But, uh, but no, I, I really think it's probably more psychological. And from a ketone reading perspective, I mean, if your cortisol is elevated, that's going to induce a, a slightly lower beta hydroxybutyrate in the blood concentration. So that could explain that as well. Yeah, exactly. And it has what I've seen, you know, it's what I've seen in people tracking sometimes. 
not every woman, but uh, it's probably related to the the level of cortisol. I agree. Let's talk about you know females, especially athletic females like yourself that are uh, you know consuming. Because I mean, I'm, I'm I look at you. You you obviously train hard. You lift heavy. You're probably consuming more than 900 calories a day, correct? Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Let's let's just kind of flesh this out because I I get so sick of seeing these females that have been preached to to consume sub 1,000 calories by coaches that claim to know what they're talking about, and I'm just like scratching my head, just frustrated at the whole situation. So. I mean, you obviously know what you're doing. You're fit, you're athletic, you have a great body composition, and you're doing something right, like you're healthy, and you're not having to eat sub-1,000 calories to obtain that. So talk a little bit about caloric intake and metabolism as it relates to females, both athletic and non-athletic. Yeah, so, you know, this kind of goes into the whole, like, calories in, calories out debate, which is, you know, a huge thing in the in the fitness world. And and, and I'm not saying calories don't matter. I do think, you know, I do think they matter. And when I work with patients and when, when I work with clients, you know, we set calorie goals and we set macronutrient goals. But I think that in the long run, you know, for me, counting and tracking like is not sustainable. I live an extremely busy life. I don't have time to do that. And I want women to have the ability to have a sustainable lifestyle where they eat intuitively and they listen to their bodies. Now, women have kind of ruined their bodies and their hormones and their satiety mechanisms and they have leptin resistance and they can't figure out when they're hungry and when they're not, and they have cravings all the time. So I, I do think we have to work on repairing that. And and so maybe we should count and track. Now, when people are telling people to eat sub 1,000 calories, I mean, even the the skinniest of women, like I've, I, I think it would be extremely rare to find a woman with a basal metabolic rate that's really that low because a lot of times, you know, when we change our body composition, when you add some muscle and you actually boost your metabolism a little bit, you know, you can actually eat more calories. So I think it's dangerous to see what's happening sometimes in the fitness world with these recommendations. And and I'm sure if you looked at some of the credentials of these people, they don't even have, you know, an, enough background to be making these recommendations. It can be super dangerous. I mean, if you put people into that level of, of calorie deprivation, you're certainly going to start to see hormonal disturbances, you're going to see thyroid dysfunction. Um, and it's just not good for for long term health. And, and I do think we also need to open our mind a little bit about, you know, body dysmorphia. I think it's I think it's a big thing. It's like this push for women to be, you know, at the super low body fat and for men to be like totally shredded 365 days a year. And, and we see pictures on social media and Instagram and, and a lot of these things aren't sustainable. I mean, you know that Robert competing, you know, you're not at that level of body fat for very long before you start reverse dieting. And I think, you know, on women, we put this pressure to like constantly look super lean. And even with my own body composition, you know, I, at my lowest body fat, I was kind of around like 15, but right now I hover like around 18 and, and it's very sustainable. I'm still social. I, I don't track, I don't count, and I'm surely not eating less than a thousand calories. I think I, <laughs> I think I would die. <laughs> but um, do you have any idea what your, what your average intake is now? Like if you just had a guess? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably like somewhere around 1600, um, is kind of my, my maintenance calories. And, uh, it, it works well. Like I said, I don't count and track every day, but, um, when I, when I do, and when I ballpark kind of what I'm eating, yeah, it's about, it's about 1600 for me and for, I'm full disclosure. So I'm five foot, uh, five foot nine, five foot nine and a half. And I weigh about 
160, 162 pounds. So, and my body fat's about 18%. I'm at about 1600 calories. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I feel like, uh, you know, women are just, I mean, men and women, but women, especially they're afraid to add calories back in because they've been preached as calories in calories out, you know, scenario their whole lives. And they just assume that increasing calories is going to equate to increased fat gain. And that might be the case initially until their body equalizes and their hormones regulate. But once you start ramping up the caloric intake, you're going to ramp up that metabolism. So you're going to have a better ability to build muscle, which is going to improve your composition. And it's going to make it that much easier to maintain lower body fat. Yeah. And so what we see in the literature too, is that basically at about day 14 in a severe calorie deficit, you put this girl on a 900 calorie diet and at about day 14, her thyroid function absolutely tanks. So in people who are really trying to, you know, cut significant body fat, and I know, you know, this working with, with figure, you know, clients and, and people in prep is that it's good to have like intermittent refeeds where we, you know, add in more calories. And I, and I do this sometimes, even with clients that are trying to lose a massive amount of weight, we, we do periods of time where we go back to maintenance calories for a little bit, you know, before we start cutting again. And I, and I do think that's super important. You cannot, I, this is my analogy that I use with patients. I say, you can't steal from the bank account very fast without the IRS figuring it out. So you, you know, when you're creating a calorie deficit, it's very slow. I mean, we're talking about just ticking down the calories very slowly. You can't just like drop a thousand calories below their basal metabolic rate and expect that there's not going to be consequences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I really like what you said at the very beginning of this podcast with regard to people noticing a reduction in their thyroid output as their body fat drops. I was actually listening to uh, a podcast with um, Mike Mutzel and Peter T the other day, and they were talking about how thyroid function decreases you know, regardless of the type of diet you're on, if you lose a, a certain percentage of body fat, um, that's going to be different for every individual. But regardless of the diet, you know, that as a standalone, once your body fat increases below a certain level, your thyroid function is going to, you know, respond accordingly. So I think a lot of people are getting on keto. They're having these these positive effects, you know, of lower body fat, water, you know, excess water retention loss. Um, they're just going to lose a lot of weight pretty much right at the gates. Not Not all the time, but a lot of times. And they see that decrease in thyroid function, so they assume that there's that keto doesn't work for them. Where in reality, it's working so well for them, but that effect on their thyroid would happen regardless of the diet they were using. Exactly. And in those situations, I usually will check it. If it looks like we've seen this reduction, then I say, okay, let's check it again in six to eight weeks. I mean, that's the thing is you shouldn't have this gunshot reaction off one lab, and, and patients need to know that too. I'm, I'm curious because you, I mean, you are very in tune with your body. You know what you've experimented with, what works, how it responds, and why. When you've, like, I'm a huge fan of incorporating keto caloric refeeds, is what I call them. So basically an increase in fat or or protein or some combination of the two um, above my normal caloric intake. And I can see a a great benefit there from, you know, ramping up metabolism standpoint to making a cutting protocol more sustainable to how I feel and perform in the gym the next day. Have you noticed a benefit with that, uh, I know I know you noticed the benefit with that, but as it relates to doing something similar with a, a carb up or cyclical or targeted keto, how how do those two compare? Yeah, so great question. And this must you you mean like when I ate that whole keto brick the other day? Is that what you're talking about? A refeed? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know you did you you must have posted that on Instagram or something. I didn't even notice that. No, I just I started on the brick in the morning and then it was gone by lunchtime. <laughs> That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, 
Okay. Yeah. Good question. So I tried, I did a month of cyclic ketogenic where I was doing like a really large carb refeed, like on the seventh day. And I felt horrible on my carb refeeds. Um, I did, I did really improve my body composition the month that I did it. Um, and I think psychologically it helped. Um, but I felt horrible and I checked my labs at the end of the month and like my fasting insulin had gone up and my A1C had like bumped up. And so I was a little bit worried about maybe what it was really doing with my insulin sensitivity. So then I, I tried a little bit more targeted approach and I actually found much, much better results doing targeted. Like I, I felt better doing it that way. And, um, I'm actually going to be testing out um, the new You Can Starch product, doing more of a targeted ketogenic um, here coming up at the end of July. So it'll be very interesting to just kind of see how my body responds to that. But I I do think both psychologically and physically that doing some calorie refeeds or short short amount of, of carb refeeds, uh, that there is benefit. I really do think so. And what I find is that uh, a lot of people do this kind of naturally, like on a social level, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, they might have a vacation or, or, uh, you know, a social event or something coming up and they'll, they'll boost their calories for a day or two or their carbs for a day or two, and then kind of go back to maintenance. And, and they tend to actually see really good results that next week. Have you ever done like a, like a side-by-side comparison of doing like a targeted fat load or protein load? compared to a targeted carb load to see how it's affected your performance with all other variables held constant? No, I don't know that I have. I'd be, I'd be curious. I'm, I'm, I don't like carb ups are like the thing right now. And it's, it's like the buzzword. And for me personally, like I've, I've always been just strict keto. Like I would do carb ups before I was keto adapted and I've done carbohydrate backloading, which is basically targeted keto uh, or cyclical keto. And for me, I, I, my argument is that all those benefits that people are seeing can be also achieved with an increase in calories from fat and protein if they're well adapted. Right, right. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. And that's interesting. It's interesting stuff for sure because I, I feel like having that, you know, increase in calories is, is the main driving factor. They're like having some kind of way to ramp up metabolism and provide, especially if you're trying to cut down and you're decreasing your calories over time, that's going to have a pretty prominent effect on your body's metabolic rates and hormone balance. So having that increase, that influx in calories at some point on a regular basis is going to be the main, the main beneficial factor. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Like I said, the data shows that like at day 14, you know, at least every 14 days, you should be doing some kind of, of refeed, whether that's with with excess calories or, or with a small amount of carbohydrates. But yeah, I think it'd be interesting to look at those side by side. What what uh, what are you excited about? Like going forward, I know you've got a lot going on with with your medical practice and everything. But for you personally and professionally, what what are you gearing up for, and, and what what gets you fascinated? Yeah, so I am trying to get the best content and information out there to people because, like I said, I feel like I'm you know kind of almost a, a pioneer in this women's health space, and so I've going to be having a podcast starting. I'm working on writing a book about, about pregnancy and, and women's health. And we need that information out there. Good information. There's, there's lots of information out there on the internet. And so those are small projects that I'm working on. We also have um, a keto summit that's happening right here in my own town 
some awesome people coming to town for that. That's on uh, January 11th. So that's super exciting. And uh, it's uh, just a busy life. I have three kids and a medical practice and all these exciting things happening in the ketogenic space. So uh, life is life is good right now. Have you tried twisting your kid's arm to, to make them keto as well? Yeah, they actually went um, lower carb. They're not ketogenic, but lower carb in January. And it's been crazy. They're super receptive to it. And we really come at it from a, a standpoint of just like teaching them about nutrition and how we fuel our bodies and how it makes us feel. And I have three daughters. I mean, it's super important to me because I don't want them to be 31 years old and told they have prediabetes. Like, I just don't want them ever to be in that position. But it's been interesting. Like, they'll ask for steak and shrimp for dinner, or they'll ask me, like, how many carbs are in this? And um, we do it in a super, you know, healthy way. And and it's just, we drive basically with education when it comes to our kids. But uh, I won't lie. I mean, they love an ice cream cone. Today is my middle daughter's birthday. You know, we'll probably let her have a treat for her birthday. But um, we just don't make it a consistent thing in our house. Knowing what you know now about nutrition, because when you had the, your three daughters, you weren't keto at the time. Knowing what you know now, how would you go into like a pregnancy, breastfeeding, et cetera, going forward? Like if you were to do it yeah. all over again. So pregnancy is hard because nobody wants to mess with pregnant people. I mean, they're growing another human life. And so the current recommendations for women in pregnancy is not to consume anything less than 150 carbs. And that, that number is kind of, kind of arbitrary. We know that pregnant women actually go into ketosis very easily. And I think we really need to change our mindset a little bit, viewing this really more as physiology and not pathology. I think is as doctors, we think that ketones are pathologic and they just really aren't. I think it's nature's protective mechanism. It's an alternative fuel source. And in the first trimester, it's difficult. Even my low-carb ketogenic patients, they can really suffer in the first trimester because um, they can get nausea and vomiting or hyperemesis, um, which is actually thought to be due to a lot of blood sugar excursions that are happening. But a lot of them have food aversions. They really, the thought of like meat and protein is quite aversive. And so they tend to want to eat a few more carbs in the first trimester, which I think is completely is completely fine. Um, and then second and third trimesters, especially in the third trimester, is when more insulin resistance really starts to happen. The placenta secretes hormones that make an insulin-resistant state essentially to help shuttle more of the, the nutrients and glucose to the baby. And that's why we test for diabetes and pregnancy at, uh, at 28 weeks. My recommendation for anybody that's, that's eating lower carb or ketogenic is actually to not do the traditional glucola screening, but to get a glucometer and actually check your blood sugars. Because if you've been low carb or ketogenic for a while, you're, you're quite likely to actually fail that test. And so um, you should just check your blood sugars and, and see what's happening. And then in this third trimester, like I said, we see women go into ketosis much easier. Um, the ketones um, help with the baby's brain development in the late third trimester. And then shortly um, after delivery, when a baby starts breastfeeding, the breast milk is very high in MCTs, medium chain triglycerides, and these ketones actually help with myelination of the baby's brain. And so, you know, it's perfectly safe for a woman to be to be consuming um, lower carbs. Now, what is that threshold? You know, we don't, we don't really know. We can't, it's very hard to study pregnant women on a, on a ethical basis. But what I've found just observationally in these women is that, um, you know, I have some consuming, it seems like most of them are maybe around like 75 grams of carbs, usually for the pregnancy and, and they've had healthy pregnancies and, and healthy babies. And then 
when you're breastfeeding, you certainly need more calories. You know, in, in pregnancy, you probably actually only need, some studies show maybe 70 to 150 additional calories to grow a pregnancy. So I really counsel women, this is not the time to just be consuming whatever you want. Prenatal nutrition, we talked about that epigenetic influence. But then when you're breastfeeding, I mean, you're talking about almost an additional 500 calories per day um, when women are, are making that much breast milk. And so you need some additional calories. So you need to make sure that you're keeping your supply up and, and keeping adequate hydration. But I have seen women um, who are low carb with breastfeeding and they have no issues with their supply. Now, I get a lot of questions on social media and patients in my clinic that have a baby and then suddenly they want to lose the baby weight and they want to go low carb. I would recommend... Um, being keto adopted or fat adopted for at least like four to six weeks um, before attempting a pregnancy. And then um, when you're breastfeeding, you have to be real kind of slow with the reduction in carbohydrates, or sometimes you can see a, a transient drop in milk supply. But I've also had patients reach out to me on social media and tell me they saw, you know, a really big increase in their supply going low carb. So um, I think there's there's something to that too, because we know that insulin resistance can really hurt a woman's ability to make breast milk. Our PCOS patients a lot of times um, fail to breastfeed very well because they they don't make enough milk for their for their babies. So I think that we need a totally different approach for for pregnancy and breastfeeding. I did not realize that it was only about a hundred calorie increase for the nine months of pregnancy, but then like roughly a 500 calorie increase for breastfeeding. It's, I, I would have figured it would have been the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. Crystal's got a client that's, uh, that's breastfeeding and she helped her clean up and, and kind of focus on nutrient density with her ketogenic diet and her milk productions, I believe more than doubled at this point, which is, is pretty cool. Cause a lot of people, like you said, they're, they're just concerned that their, their milk production is going to hit the tanks, you know, when they switch over to keto or, you know, or on a ketogenic-based protocol, and that's not true at all necessarily. Yeah, no, I've seen I've seen that uh, increase in supply happen with many, many women. Have you had any patients that are like hardcore strict carnivore and go through a pregnancy because they would be consuming, you know, next to nothing from a carbohydrate standpoint? Um, I haven't had any like super strict carnivores. I have one patient that was like kind of predominantly carnivore. Um, you know, she was doing liver and, and organ meats and things like that, but she was consuming like small amounts of, of carbs with it. But I've probably only really had one patient. You know, we know anecdotally, I know women who have, you know, gone through pregnancy as carnivore, but um, that one might be a little bit more controversial. But when you think about it, when I when I counsel patients about what what are the nutrient needs during a pregnancy, gosh, meat, eggs, and liver contain a lot of the nutrients that a women, you know, that women need. And even just this year, they, they increased the recommendation for choline, you know, um, intake in pregnancy. And so these are actually very good, healthy foods that should be part of a, of a prenatal nutrition plan. Is there any recommendation for a prenatal nutrition plan that you would have to get from a carb source alone, or would you be able to theoretically get everything from a well-formulated ketogenic diet? Well, it's interesting. There's a really large document on recommendations for nutrition and pregnancy. And even in that document, it says that essentially in the face of adequate protein and fat intake, that carbs are essentially non-essential. And when you look at the recommendation for carb intake, if a woman is, is taking in 50 to 60% of her calories from carbohydrates, it would be very difficult to meet the micronutrient needs of that pregnancy, consuming that many carbs without having a huge, you know, caloric, um, 
expenditure. So I, I think we have prenatal nutrition wrong. I, I don't think that that level of, of carbohydrates are needed to, to grow a healthy pregnancy. And, and I think that ketones play a very physiologic role in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Do you ever recommend any exogenous ketone supplements for patients that are pregnant or breastfeeding? Is there any benefit there at all? Yeah, that area is a, you know, a little bit controversial. Um, you know, what is the level of ketones that are that are safe? Now, certainly with like BHB salts, you're not going to get the levels very high for for very long. Um, I've observed women using them in pregnancy, you know, without any adverse effects. But I don't know that we know enough um, about that. Now, certainly with esters, you can get your levels, you know, a lot higher. But I'd be a little bit cautious with like excessive use of like exogenous ketones. I guess the question would be is, you know, um, I, I think they're a tool. So, you know, it's like, why, why are you using them? Why do you need them? I think that's maybe a, a more important question. Gotcha. One last question for you. What about training in pregnancy? You know, the, the women that are living a pretty active lifestyle need to adjust that much if they're well, like when they go into pregnancy or can they pretty much maintain what they've been doing previously. No, so may you know uh, if even if women were not exercising prior to getting pregnant, I recommend exercise during pregnancy. Um, it helps with excessive weight gain in pregnancy. It really helps women with labor and delivery. So birthing a baby is like actually a very great athletic feat. Um, if you've never watched it, it's it's quite amazing and and uh, it's. It's endurance. I mean, labor is is not short very often, and so um, I recommend that women do exercise. I want them to maintain. Now, I have taken care of some athletes that are like CrossFit athletes. Um, I've even had like two pregnant patients that have competed like in CrossFit competitions while pregnant. The issue in pregnancy becomes that the center of gravity really starts to change, and so sometimes women will have to make modifications to their routines. Um, or different lifting, you know, techniques. We also have a little bit of a theoretical risk in the third trimester with laying like flat on your back and compression of the vena cava. So women have to be kind of um, paying attention to that. And then the other issue is that a lot of the hormones that are secreted in pregnancy, um, things like relaxin, which are kind of relaxing our ligaments and tendons so that a baby can fit through your pelvis, a lot of these can make you more prone to injury. So women just have to be, you know, careful because their joints and things are more loose and lax. And so they're just more prone to injury. So people just need to be aware of those things. But I think it's super important that women um, maintain physical activity during exercise in some in some way, shape or form. Very cool. Very cool. It's going to be a little while before I uh, before Crystal and I try and for a kid, but I'm definitely going to be applying some of these principles. I'll make sure she doesn't slack on the gym at all <laughs> during that time. <laughs> Baby Savage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Baby Savage. I think it'll come out with abs. It'll be good. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> well, Jamie, I truly do appreciate the time. You're, you're a wealth of knowledge on this topic. I'm going to be picking your brain when that time comes for Crystal and I for sure. But I'd love to, to just keep following along and see what you're doing going forward. I mean, you're, you are on the cutting edge of a lot of really interesting topics here. So keep doing what you're doing. Keep, you know, shining a light for people that, that need to know this stuff. So where can people go to find out more about you and, and just watch and learn as, as you watch and learn? Yeah, so they can go to my Facebook or my Instagram, Dr. Fit and Fabulous. And I'm also, I have a website, drfitandfabulous.com. They can find information about online consults and trying to keep it up to date on um, all the different projects that I'm working on. I'll be speaking at the Metabolic Health Summit in um, 
late January and then at the Keto Summit here in Omaha, Nebraska, January 11th. Now, is that the Metabolic Health Summit that's, it was in February this year, right? Uh, it's Yes, yeah, like it's basically like the last couple of days of January and early February. So it's in Long Beach, California. Gotcha. Gotcha. That'd be good. I think I'll be there again this year. So I'll see you there in person for sure, if not beforehand. Perfect. Well, Jamie, until then, I certainly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Robert. Have a great day. You too. Take care.